This is High Stakes from Gerard Phillips, Kate and Hancock. Welcome to High Stakes. I'm David Schifrin. We've got another great conversation today between our CEO, David Gerard, and Michael Peregrine of McDermott, Will, and Emery. They last spoke in December about the relationship between the CEO and the legal team and the board, and really the increasing expectations around healthcare CEOs that they be visible and out in the community almost as public figures speaking to important issues of the day. Now, as we're well into the new year already, Michael and David take stock of what healthcare boards need to be thinking about going forward and really doing some internal reflection about their role and their responsibility and even who needs to be involved going forward. There's some tough love, there's some hard talk and some really interesting conversations, so let's get right to it. Let's start very high level with everything that we've seen to to this point and kind of compiling the last year. The vaccine rollout is underway, people are still nervous when boards and executives sit down to meet, what what do those conversations need to look like today? Yeah, I, I think, uh, David, thanks so much. Uh, and wonderfully to be back with you this afternoon. As I see it right now, part of that conversation needs to be about the implications for the institution, its rep- uh, reputation, and its community outreach with respect to the fragilities of the distribution system right now. I would bet, and I don't know if your survey picks up on this, but I would bet a topic of a dinner table conversation at most households, regardless of background, is when am I going to get the vaccine? How far am I going to have to drive? Is this system screwed up or what? I think there are, I think, well, you know, it's true. We have those at our house. How can I pretend that I'm 65? But in all seriousness, I think that the boards of health systems need to acknowledge, and I'm sure they're starting to, that the breadth of, I won't say criticism, but the breadth of concern about the logistics of the vaccine rollout and the extent to which that may have an implication on how they view the health system. I know that's that's somewhat inconsistent with the surveys, David, that you that you've conducted. But I think in response to the question, issue number one is how are we as a health system implicated by the fragility and the rollout process and logistics, fairly or unfairly, and what can we do about it, and what can we do to to support and assist that? I think those are the the kinds of conversations that need to be had at the board level right now. Yeah, our our most recent survey um, shows that uh, our hospital clients still can still benefit from a halo the extent when people think about who they blame for the rollout or the chaos that's, that's occurred, federal government is the line share, and they're sort of the favorite target of just about everyone. But we're beginning to see issues of trust and the credibility of our organizations begin to decline just a little bit. And I think as the world begins to clunkily sort of wake up, as the vaccinations begin to take hold, people come back to life. There's going to be more blame to be passed around. So it's exactly right to be asking those questions and sensitive about it. I hope when the boards and um, executive teams get together, that the executive team is providing the board with tactical, specific information about what they're doing now and Absolutely. how they're accountable for it. And I hope the board is coming back to the executive team and saying, that's great. So, big picture, what does the future look like? And how are we prepared for the next? pandemic, and how are we addressing the disruptors that are likely to come into the marketplace? I'm hoping there's a, there's a tactical conversation on one side and a, a big picture conversation on the other. 
And the big picture conversation, as we uh, alluded to the last time I talked about, has to be lessons learned. Even yes. though we're not we're not out of this yet, what are our greatest takeaways from from the the last year, and how what have we learned in terms of prophylactic activities? How well are we prepared for the next incident? But David, I would come back to the situation where, where which concerns me, and that is you know the unfair criticism that health systems will make. For example, as, as there is PCPs, most of whom are employed by a health system are reaching out and trying to contract their, uh, contact their patients and say, you know, we'll tell you what information we have, but we don't have much. Invariably, uh, you know, they're out in the front line. So I would encourage boards and the executive leadership team to listen, as I'm sure they do, to their PCPs and say, what are you hearing from the community? What are our consumers' anxieties? What are their fears? What can we do to help you, the PCPs, in those communications, especially if, as uh, the, the Wall Street Journal seems to be reporting, much of the future distribution will continue to be in retail outlets and at pharmacies and not at health systems. What role at that point does the, does the health system play, the inpatient system? And David, I'm very interested in your perspective. If consumers by and large are get their vaccine through public sources like lining up at the football stadium or at the at the pharmacy or at, at the grocery store what are the implications to the health system as historically the number one source of health care for the community are they is that going to be a distraction or will they come back to the health system it's, it's a great question. In fact, we asked people where they wanted to, if they had a choice, where could they get the vaccine? Where would they choose to get the vaccine? Most people would like to get the vaccine in their doctor's office. It's where they feel safest. It's where they feel like they have a relationship. It's where they trust the, the health care that's going to be delivered to them. But you're exactly right. Chances are they're going to be doing it in an arena, right, or at a retail environment, which will not have the trust. And we hope will not have the sort of long-term stickiness to keep that customer relationship or take it away from the PCP. I think it's the primary job of the health system to support their PCPs, just as you were saying, to listen closely to what they're hearing, but also to relieve them with answers about the vaccine. It's not going to be delivered to the PCP's office. So here's what you can say to your patients. Here's what you can say to your customers. Here's what you can say to your staff. So you you can uh, transfer that responsibility to us will tell folks where to go and how to get it. You know, another point, David, that, that I think is important to address is the ability of the, the board to make sure there's an appropriate communication plan regarding, you know, the issue you and I've talked about before and the equity and the fairness or the, 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 the what do they call it, the immunized class. How is the health system communicating with its consumers with respect to how it's made decisions about essential workers? Are you worried? Are you seeing some type of class warfare as it relates to who's getting we, we, vaccine and who's not getting the vaccine at the health system? Yeah, we, we, we've seen this just in the last week where health systems, for example, when they have some leftover vaccine at the end of the day and they don't want to uh, destroy it, they want to put it to good use. And so they've sent it to or offered it to members of their foundation or sort of friends and family because in a good hearted way, they want to be sure the vaccine is well used. But in a retrospect, it can, seen as, it can be seen as favoritism and they're getting unsharded criticism for this. So it, seen It'd be right for them to be thinking, you know, if we find ourselves in a place where we have a vaccine left over or extra doses and we don't want them to be destroyed, nobody does, uh, to have a process in place to care for those who are in greatest need, to address those inequalities just in the delivery of healthcare, it could be not only a great thing to do, it could be great for their uh, reputation as well. 
And, and certainly we are seeing inequalities in the delivery of care and the availability of care. And perhaps are there opportunities, do you think, for the health systems to team with state and local government in, in, in finding out the reasons why minority populations are, have been unable to access the, the vaccine, even yes. when it may be available? It, it, it's, it's great to team up for the delivery of care, but it's also great to team up to understand why certain populations are very hesitant to receive uh, the vaccine. African-American populations and others have good reason in some cases not to trust healthcare or the delivery of some medicine. And they've shown again and again through not just our surveys, but other surveys, they are very reluctant to, to, get, uh, vaccinated, uh, to get vaccinated even when the vaccine is available. So reaching into those communities, understanding what they need to see and hear, and who they need to hear it from is going to be hugely important. And it's the right thing to do. David, you know, in, in most of these instances, a board member is going to be correct in saying, look, the real problem is with the federal government, and, and they have just balled this up from day one. Let's have a communication strategy that, that tells it like it is and saying, we're trying to do everything we can, but pointing to the, the Washington, D.C. and say, that's where the problem lies. Don't blame us. Is that kind of uh, blame game, even if accurate, an effective communication strategy? Yeah, no, we, we don't think it's ever great to blame. I think what's important is to say that you're doing all that you can given what you've been given. Yeah. This is this is everything we have, and this is everything we're doing, and see how it is absolutely supportive of the mission and who we are as an organization. I think that's the path. You start pointing fingers, and you're going to get pointed back to you, and that's, that's not helpful. How often do you send that message? Is it important? Are you advising your clients to have regular updates out to the, to the patient base and saying, you know, here's what we know of this week, here's an update, or, or pushing messages and communicating with the PCPs? You, you, you can't over you can't over communicate on an issue like this. People are so hungry for information, so hungry uh, for the vaccine, so hungry to get back to life that that when you feel like you've communicated too much, you're probably communicating just the right amount. And that, that's internal communications as well as external. It's not just a consumer play here. It's talking to your nurses and doctors because they're so powerful in how they influence public's position on, um, on these questions. David, I want to spin off of that a little bit because it gets to both the internal and the external issues of trust. The other finding that we've had in our survey is that, the, that there's the vaccine wariness among all sorts of different populations, uh, but also the public overwhelmingly expects or believes that healthcare workers should be vaccinated, should be potentially required to be vaccinated. And, you know, by and large, most healthcare providers aren't making that requirement. So there's, there's another potential tension point, right? So how do you, like, let's talk about the, the, again, both the internal and external communication about explaining what you're doing. Cause you, you just said, tell the community that we're doing all we can. Is there a risk that they come back and say, well, yeah, but you're not requiring your own people to do it. Yeah, there's, there's, there's always a risk, and there's no secret in something like this because the interest is so high, every communication should be considered a public communication. On the other hand, if you require the vaccine and you have a good portion of your staff or a portion of the population who are reluctant, um, you're, you're guaranteed to have pushback and rollback and begin a conversation that's not going to be helpful. So I, I think you, you need to do what you can do and explain how and why you're doing it. This is one of those touchy areas too, like at the beginning of the pandemic when boards were unjustifiably reluctant to interfere with what they thought management's prerogative was. So I think this is, you know, we may have on this issue of vaccine, public trust, consumer trust, 
in the issue, perhaps going back to the point where we have to encourage boards to say, you know, really this, this you do have a say here. Your, your, your view is important. You're a consumer as well as a fiduciary and a, and a shared responsibility. And on these issues of protecting the workforce, both David and David, you know, it, it, is, it is a new but clear fiduciary obligation of the governing board to assure the safety of the workforce, to be responsible for workforce quality. That's, had a, that's been acknowledged in the last five years. It's had a bumpy rollout. Uh, there are many boards that are still concerned that that's inappropriately interfering with the uh, prerogative of management. But the, the experts, the, the governance principles are clear. The board has an absolute obligation to be mindful and to supervise management's uh, rollout and protection support of the uh, workforce culture and workforce safety. So they have to be involved with the issue of how the, the workforce and the, are considered essential workers. And there is a value in having a policy of whether or not we are going to require the vaccination process, everyone to be vaccinated. And we're starting to see that in a variety of industries. David, you'd see that as catching up uh, soon that this is a conversation, whether it's in ballparks, on airplanes and restaurants, how far is this going to go? Yeah, I, I think eventually we'll, we'll be in a place where there is a public expectation that healthcare workers, all healthcare workers will be vaccinated. We're, we've not been placed in a position where it's a have, have to yet because the, the supply has not kept up with demand. One thing that's interesting out of the survey is that even those healthcare workers who said they were hesitant, almost half of them said, I'm hesitant, but it doesn't mean I'll never. It means I wanna see what the side effects are. I wanna see somebody else take it, see if there's a, a bad reaction. And if not, then I may be open to that. So I, I think if you're a healthcare system, watching people get vaccinated and lifting them up, telling their story, so sort of visibly demonstrating that the side effects are, are mild or there, there's none, for most people is important to eradicating the hesitancy in the healthcare worker population. And that's an important step. Is that a better message than simply saying, you will, as an employee, we are going to mandate that you must have a, a, a vaccination? I think peer pressure is extremely powerful. And right now, because the vaccine has had limited visible exposure, it's easy for people to make up stories about what it is or what it could be or what the consequences should be. It's harder when the nurse next to you on your unit has been vaccinated, and the other one's been vaccinated, and the other one's vaccinated, and you're still crossing your arms. I think we need a little time to let that cope and that peer pressure to apply itself before we take what I hope will not be the necessary next step, which is this is clinically proven. You've got to do it to continue to fulfill your mission and serve patients. But the board has to be prepared to take that step, I would think. I think the board needs to be prepared to be required by public opinion to take that step, yes. David, you know, we're talking about, again, that the board has the right to, to mandate, you know, subject to certain limitations under federal law, but the right to mandate vaccination. But there's some risks there, too, not just from a PR perspective and not just from an employee relations perspective, but for those who have unionized workforces, do you see a problem there as well? Could it, this it is, yeah, Michael, it is, you're right, exactly. Right. It is a workforce issue, and it's one I know the boards and executive teams take seriously. Uh, we have seen a, a number of labor unions use the requirement of vaccination as a bright line particularly related to the COVID vaccine, even though most organizations require other vaccines like for the flu yeah. and other elements, this is required. But in this case, the vaccine and the vaccination process has been politicized. It's, it's been a Trump, Biden, Democrat, Republican, left or right wing issue. And so the, the requirement has become politicized in itself. My hope is that as the vaccination has proved effective 
when we get further away from, I don't even know what to call the end of 2020, but from that moment of craziness and insanity, that the, the politicization of medicine will decline as well. Now, it is, it, on this topic, I would just kind of conclude by saying it's one of those issues where you have a real combination of what the law requires, what the law allows, the board's oversight obligations, and what's effective communication. It's one of, like we discussed in our last presentation, it's one of those areas where law, fiduciary duty, and, and communications meet at the very apex of the organizational structure. Let's, let's look a little bit about the sort of the overarching environment right now, because we're having this conversation about a month out from January 6th. And while you know it feels like things have calmed down or, or have quieted down, things weren't just sort of magically repaired. And everything that, that you both just talked about in terms of you know, tension potentially between providers and the public or labor unions and providers or whoever it is, that is all now happening with challenging issues in the additional context of, of society at large just being very wound very tight. So how do you, how do providers navigate this tension with you know this insane crisis that happened in Washington D.C. just weeks ago? I, I would start you know and ask David for his input. Uh, there is a concept, and we talked a little bit about in our last conversation, of corporate citizenship, which I think is an increasing expectation of businesses, regardless of industry sector, especially those who interact so directly with consumers such as healthcare. What is a corporation doing to bring value despite, in addition just to its economic return? How is it benefiting society, whether it's a for-profit or a not-for-profit organization? David, one of the things that I have just been absolutely struck with, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, the surveys and, and curious to see what your survey showed, that, that, that the public distrust of government is so high that they are increasingly, ever more so than before, looking to business as a yeah. way of solving their problems. And, you know, that's something that Larry Fink of BlackRock in his CEO letters has said for years in terms of expecting business to be able to assume more and more of the obligations that people used to look to government for. But now you've got surveys that say, no, that's absolutely the case. They are looking to business for their solutions and not government. And it's critical that boards understand that and begin to evolve their strategy to embracing that because the expectation of their consumers demands it. Yes, the former reporter is such an exceptional development. It's one I would never have anticipated. But you're exactly right. Businesses are now considered to be the leaders in bringing solutions to the problems that communities and populations that healthcare systems serve are facing. And boards have both an obligation in this and a responsibility, but also an opportunity to step into that um, role as a solution provider. And I think they uh, avoid it at their, at their risk. How do you do that? How do you step into that role? Because you're, that's not something that a, a large healthcare organization, they're used to doing. It's one thing to advertise. It's one thing to send your message to the community. It's entirely another thing to say, trust me, you know, we're, we'll, we'll be responsible for your healthcare and we'll you know, look to us before you count on the, the state or federal government. One of the things we love about the healthcare industry, and we're attracted to it um, as a group of mission-driven, cause-driven people like you, Michael, um, is that they have a unique, unifying calling. I mean, it is about patient care, it is about volumes and heads and beds, and there's a business to healthcare as well. But there is a mission under, underlying everything that they do that they can unify Republicans and Democrats and independents into care for other humans um, and, the, and the furtherance of um, 
the health of an entire population, entire community, rich or poor. If they draw on that sort of center of gravity, unify the workforce, unify their community, then they can speak with great credibility. And the challenge sometimes for boards is they need to speak. You can't just stand by and let that happen or hope that the executive team does that, although the executive team uh, do that, does that for their brand. But as community leaders ingrained in their neighborhoods and churches and civic organizations and all the other places that they are, they need to speak and carry that toward. It's a, it's a unique opportunity. It's unique in healthcare. But that's, this is that's a window, but not to miss it. That's a difficult thing for some boards and most boards who are used to being discreet, looking to their CEO take the lead and, and making sure the CEO is the voice of the organization on these matters of day-to-day -day operations. Uh, it, it takes a little bit of a psychological shift, doesn't it, David, to, to have the board starting to speak out more? It's good because it goes beyond more than those, you know, what is it, a few second elevator conversations. It does go beyond that, but this is not a moment for the faint-hearted. I mean, uh, this is a moment of great trans transformation and disruption in our industry. And if you're not ready for that, and the responsibility that it takes for that, it's time to consider joining, you know, a, a different board, maybe if you want to continue to contribute to the community. But this is this is a time for a little bit of courage uh, to step into these conversations because of the opportunity and obligations I think these boards have. How does that relate in your mind to, to the vexing social issues regarding the economic and racial disparities in health that we that kind of gave, gave rise to some of the more interesting social determinants of health conversations of the last several years, but more specifically on the issue of the disparities that we're seeing reported over the last several weeks in terms of access to the vaccine? What, what do you tell a board member who's saying, look... No, that's the job of management. I'm not getting in the way. I don't want to send an inconsistent message. I'm happy to appear by the CEO side, but that's not what I signed up for. Those are really sensitive issues, and that's for the politicians to address, not for the not for our board. Well, it's certainly for the board to remind the executive teams. I'm sure they do that we have a mission to serve, and the expectation is that as we fulfill our mission, we fulfill our mission for everyone, particularly for the not-for-profit health system. I also think sometimes it's difficult for boards, particularly very large, successful organizations, to understand that the problems in the community are, are ones they can contribute to, but they are not the sole solution for it. And so partnerships and collaboration and connecting and coalition and alliances is the only way we're going to affect things like uh, social, the social determinants of care and the, the incredible inequities that we've seen in the marketplace that the pandemic is just for writ large for us. And so joining arms with others in the fulfillment of our mission, I think is part of the solution for the future and boards have to lead that. Because if you're an executive leader, you're all about owning your market share and owning your turf and meeting your numbers, which is exactly what you want. But as boards, you have, you have that big, bigger vision, that broader perspective, and that's a great value you can bring to your organization. Is there a room for that on the agenda of the board in 2021? <laughs> if there's not, we got to create room for it. It's, it's, again, it's a tough calling, but it's the right calling. Well, Michael, I'm, I'm curious about what you're hearing from your boards today and what, what is, what's their stress point right now? Is their stress point the future and the private equity groups coming in? Are they thinking a year down the road or are they thinking a month from now we need to be able to retain these positions? We've got to keep these nurses happy. We've got to keep our patients coming in the doors. It's a terrific balance that they're having to play in the in the near term. They're basically saying, you know, I would say they're balancing again the access to care. How do we care for our patients? We're struggling with this governmental reaction, and how do we support our patient 
patient base with our mission. Number two, they're struggling with the situation of uh, is, will there be a new wave? How do we address the near term and, and the continuing implications of the pandemic and of the variations? Are we prepared for a variant that the, the vaccine does not you know, uh, address? What are those yes. near term implications? I, I think they have learned to uh, keep a very short-term view in terms of quality of care and safety from one perspective. At the second side, uh, they're looking and saying, okay, assuming at some point we get past this, what does the future of the health system look like? What will what have we learned? Uh, what, what measures that we have applied over the last year have worked? What don't work? What changes in the way we communicate? What changes in the way we operate? What changes in the way we present ourselves to the community will we keep in those, what will be discarded? It's the whole business resiliency issue. But fundamentally, I think, David, that most boards are, are, are focused on how do we get this right as the pandemic continues and let's, we don't want to be caught off guard if this continues yes. or another curveball comes at us. I think the, they're looking very much at the nuts and bolts of those issues. Are, are you finding some boards are beginning to wonder maybe some board members are beginning to wonder what's our job now what's our what's our role in this new world that we're moving into well i think the greatest challenge they have is for the board management as to the extent things do ease back a little bit ease off is, is to reestablish the traditional board management dynamic the mm-hmm. law is not going to allow that to change the the board the, the role of the board in terms of supervising and monitoring management i think the the, the what you will see will be problems arising in situations where the board continues to take ingrained a, a step back where they are, are, are that discretion that they gave senior management that extraordinary discretion at the beginning of the pandemic is kind of baked into the governance uh, management relationship that would be unfortunate i think gradually boards and management need to get back to that equilibrium the way they were in terms of you do this and we do this that existed in january of 2020 the other thing that that's going to be important is to kind of take a roll call and and sit back and make some difficult decisions about who is who who answered the bell when the problems arose in March, April, and May, and who didn't. And uh, those who didn't may be wonderful people, and they may may write large checks, and they may be very substantial people in the community. But if they were unable to contribute to the process. Board service is not a lifetime right. It's an it's an opportunity. It's a service, and I think this concept of offboarding those people will probably be happening at boards across the country in the second half of this year. You can't have folks who who broke under the pressure or who were unable to rise to the occasion. Oh, that's so interesting, and I, I love that perspective that there might be a little bit of reckoning in uh, clarifying who's on the boards and who's leading these organizations. That's frankly encouraging. I think it could be a good time for that. It's extraordinarily difficult to make those decisions in any type of organization where interpersonal yeah. relationships are critical. It's just simply that I think the liability exposure to boards for failing to do that, for failing to, to be more focused on, on board refreshment, it's also critical, frankly, for David. And this just kind of comes back to what a difficult job boards have this year is the, the increased focus on diversity and inclusion. You know, we have to make room for for fresh faces. We have to make room for people with uh, much more than we have in the past for uh, diversity. And, and we can't do that if we uh, have no room on the board. Therefore, the, the expectations of director performance are going to be increased dramatically uh, because you can't be holding a seat up when we could better use it with someone else. And that'll just simply add to the pressure. I'm not sure a lot of boards see that one coming right now. I must say, Michael, that, that's an encouraging thought. Yeah. 
it depends on what perspective you're coming at it from. <laughs> but but I, I think that's you know that's an example, David, that the that, that the concept of the evolution of governance principles and especially of what the Biden administration is trying to drive directly and indirectly is going on at the same time that you have boards trying to keep the institution alive, dealing with the public health crisis of a lifetime. Bottom line, we thank these folks who are giving up their time, whether they're compensated or not, as directors. It's an extraordinary responsibility. And, yes. and if it's not full-time, it's pretty darn close to it. <laughs>